case you hadn't heard, the Israel Antiquities Authority released the news of the discovery of a new old batch of Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, it's been 60 years since they've pulled out any uh, new old ones. These are dated all the way back to A.D. 135 at the time of uh, Antiochus Epiphanes and the, the Jewish rebellion against him called the Bar Kokhba Revolt. And at that time, uh, there's a cave. They call it the Cave of Horrors because they found 40 skeletons in this cave. But uh, by literally rappelling down this mountain, they got into this cave to discover all this. Well, they just recently discovered more Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, 80 fragments of Old Testament text, but written in, in, in Greek. Now, that makes sense because at that time, Greek was the lingua franca in the region. In Judea and Samaria, even the Hebrew, the Jewish people were speaking Greek. It was the common language. By then, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, had been around for some 280 years or plus, over 300 years by then. So it's not surprising that it's written in Greek, but again, dated 1,900 years back. The only word in these fragments that they found in Hebrew is Yahweh. The Y-H-W-H, the Tetragrammaton, written in Hebrew, but the rest of it is written in Greek. So obviously they were Jewish writers of these texts. We talked about that Wednesday night, shared that. Thursday we had our shepherds meeting, and, and Mike came in and said, Have you heard? And I hadn't, and I've got to share with you. Two of the fragments have now been translated. Uh, we know where they come from, Nahum and Zechariah. So out of the minor prophets, they think perhaps these 80 fragments all come out of the minor prophets, so-called. I believe these are divine press releases. Uh, direct messages from Yahweh to the world in the waning days of this age, if the world would listen. Check these out. Zechariah chapter 8, verses 16 and 17 is the first translated scroll. These are the things you are to do. Speak the truth to one another. Render true and perfect judge, justice in your gates. The word gates actually was translated streets. And do not contrive evil against one another. And do not love perjury because all those things, these are all those things, are things that I hate, declares the Lord. Now listen to this. Nahum chapter 1 verses 5 and 6 is the other fragment. The mountains quake because of him and the hills melt. The earth heaves before him, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his wrath? Who can resist his fury? His anger pours out like fire and rocks are shattered because of him. As though a final warning has been given. And I believe that these are final warnings of Yahweh. That could be wrong. They're definitely warnings of Yahweh, whether they're final or not, we can have that conversation. But my question is, is the world even listening? Is the world even paying attention? I remember years ago, uh, oh, what's his name? Chuck Missler, thank you. Chuck Missler, years ago, it's still early. Chuck Missler made the comment, how does a being that is outside of time, space, and dimension get a message to his people, get a message to the world? How does he speak into the world? Well, you know, I know, eventually he came in the person of Jesus, the word made flesh. But prior to that, and in the lifetime of Jesus, he's given us his word. And his word transcends, and his word breaks in, and does so in a majestic way. But here he speaks again. How does God get a message of warning? Your time is almost up. You've got to get your head in the game. And these scrolls are discovered and translated. And once again, the Lord is speaking to this world. The warning is one of wrath. But my friends, God doesn't want to curse. The Lord has made it clear he does not desire the death of the sinner. It's not what he wants. It's not what he's working toward. It's what will happen to a people who rebel. But what does God want? Jake asked the question, what is God's will? That, that we be thankful. But I ask you this morning, what does he want from you? What does he want for you? 
And the answer is very simple. God wants to bless. God wants to bless. The warnings come because God wants to bless, not because he wants to curse. He wants to bless, and this morning we are in one of the most beautiful blessings in all the scriptures, Numbers chapter 6, verse 22. If you have a Bible with you, open up there, Numbers 6, 22. Numbers chapter 6, verse 22. Help me not to forget to share a couple announcements with you at the end. In number 622, it reads, The Lord then spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and I will bless them. Father, I've read this so many times. Many of us here have read through these things again and again and heard this, this Aaronite blessing, this high priestly blessing for Israel. Now, Father, I pray that you would speak it to us again fresh and new this morning. Let our hearts hear the words of this blessing as, as a revelation of your desire for all people, Father. We need to hear this, and I pray we'll have ears to hear what your spirit is saying this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I like things to be settled. I'm not good with matters unresolved, assignments uncompleted, uh, issues not concluded. I, I want stuff to be done. So the last two, three years for me have been a challenge. I want things finished. Paul said in Philippians 1.6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I love that verse, but there's a problem. The problem is that it's a difficult implication that perfection will not come until Jesus comes. He will perfect you until the day of Christ Jesus. So that means the perfecting is ongoing, which means it's unfinished, and that leaves me unsettled. Just being honest with you. It's ironic because many people in this life have a false notion of being settled in. We'll feel established in a home or in a job or in our family or in life but beneath it all, you know, I know, and we hate when those moments come, they break in and suddenly we feel unsettled. We feel as though all that I thought was solid and stable is now being shaken. We don't like that. But you know, that is God's intention to remind us that all matters, matters are not yet settled. In fact, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, he has also set eternity in their heart. We know of eternity, We have a sense of eternity. Yet, so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. Which means things are unsettled. We haven't figured it all out yet. We still don't fully understand. Oh, we know there's eternity, but we haven't quite comprehended. We will after the end. But we are in an unsettled state. And it's good to be reminded of that because... Well, that is the blessing of being in the wilderness. Becoming once again unsettled. Now, I don't mean, I don't mean disturbed or discontented. But my friends, moving into the wilderness and being aware of that reminds us that we are living an unsettled life. Matters are not settled. Things are not concluded. It's not done. Nor are we to assume that it is. Again, not that we're disturbed in this, discontent, frustrated, no, but itinerant. Itinerant. We are not called to be settlers. We are called to be sojourners. And the sojourning life is the unsettled life, not in the negative, but in the positive sense. We're aliens in this land. We are foreigners here. And we're supposed to be light on our feet, and leaning into God and looking forward to Jesus and listening to the Holy Spirit. 
the unsettled life. Unsettled. And for the first time for me this week, that word means a good thing. I realized I want to be unsettled like Abraham. By faith, Hebrews 11 verse 9 says, he lived as an alien in the land of promise. Think about that. God said, I'm giving you this land, just not yet. So what did Abraham do? He moved around in the land that was his but not his. The Hebrew pastor goes on and says, he lived as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Yaakov, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. And therefore there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number and the, as innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore, all these died in faith. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah. All these died in faith without receiving the blessings, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear. They're seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they had went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And though politically it resonated with me, and I like the idea of making America great, America great again, that's not the direction that we are called to go. We're not to go back to a previous greatness. We are living for a better country. Better, my friends, than this country has ever been, even at its height. A better place. And until then, we live the unsettled life. And we need to, because when I'm settled, it is easy to begin to take things for granted, to compromise on the hard stuff. That's not that big a deal. To lean on my own understanding and to miss the true blessings of God. We come to a blessing this morning that is all too familiar. How many of you have heard or read this blessing before? Can I see a show of hands if you've read the Aaronite blessing before? Okay, most of you have. We're used to it. In fact, it's, it's easy to read and easy to frame and put up on the mantle and go, isn't that nice? The Lord bless you and keep you. We sang it when I was in college. Sometimes I wonder if we were more into the bass notes of the song than we were to the meaning of the lyric and what the Lord was trying to say. But this is a blessing for the unsettled life. Verse 22, then the Lord spoke to Moses. Then the Lord spoke to Moses. I shared this on Wednesday night, but I want to repeat myself on this. You all need to hear this. The phrase, the Lord spoke to Moses, appears 17 times in the book of Exodus. 28 times in the book of Leviticus, which is largely just the Lord speaking, right? But in Numbers, the Lord spoke to Moses 46 times. What does that tell you? The indication is the Lord spoke to Moses more in the wilderness than at any other time. More as they were journeying unsettled. And this time he speaks to Moses with a blessing. Notice where it's placed. Consider the positioning of this blessing at the end of chapter 6, before chapter 7. This is before the people enter the wilderness. Just before. And the Lord gives it to Aaron and sons to speak it over the people throughout the journey. Before the wilderness. It's to be heard and spoken over and over and over. And we're told that it was. In fact, that this became the morning blessing at the end of the morning offering. Every single day, this blessing was spoken over the people. And then it would be spoken not only out of the tabernacle, but at the temple through its many years. And even then in the synagogue services, the blessing would be spoken at the close of morning service. And it is to this day in many synagogues around the world. 
a continual reminder that God desires to bless his people Israel forever. The blessing also appears, note this, immediately after the law of the Nazarite vow, which I think is significant. So before they go into the wilderness, but after the Nazarite vow, what's the Nazarite vow? We talked about that midweek. That's the vow that someone takes, and you can read about it all throughout chapter 6. The vow someone takes who is not a priest, a Levite, they just want to devote themselves wholly and completely to the Lord for a season, for a time, maybe for two or three months, maybe for six months or a year. Some were lifers. And they would take this Nazarite vow, no drinking, no haircuts, no dead people. That's the essence. And then you could do anything beyond that to show your devotion and your heart to the Lord. But note, the blessing comes after the teaching, after the commandment on how this vow is to be taken. What does that tell you? That here, after the vow of devotion, we see a blessing for all people. That is, God desires, hear this, God desires to bless everybody, vow or not. That's huge. The blessing of God, listen, (laughs) the blessing of God does not depend on my level of devotion. The blessing of God depends on God, not on what I'm doing in my life, how I have earned it, how I have deserved it. Now, don't misunderstand me. How I experience his blessing absolutely is affected by my devotion. Do you understand the difference? That the more devoted I am, the more I realize the blessing of God. The more I enjoy the blessing of God, the more I'm affected by the blessings of the Lord. Nonetheless, His blessings flow because of who he is, not because of what I do. And so he gives the law of the Nazarite, and then he immediately turns around and gives a blessing for all the people, Nazarite or not, because it's his nature to bless. Because that's what God wants to do, to bless all his people. Verse 23, he says, speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, you meaning Aaron at all, that the blessing is given to the Aaronite priesthood to speak over the people of Israel as a prime directive. So this was Aaron and his sons' blessing to give, the blessing of the Lord to be spoken by them And it's one of their primary tasks. Don't miss the significance of that because yes, they were to offer sacrifice. Yes, they were to keep the holy place of the tabernacle. Yes, they were to carry the holy things, the Levites, as they traveled through the wilderness. But among those incredibly important ministries of the high priesthood and the priesthood was the blessing. This is one of the most important and was to be carried out continually. In Leviticus chapter 9, verse 22, on his ordination day, we're told that Aaron, and you can get this picture, Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. It's the job of the priest to bless. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 8, at that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord to serve him, and to bless his name until this day. Deuteronomy 21, 5, then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near, for the Lord your God has chosen them to serve him and to bless in the name of the Lord. So the role, the job, the task of the priest is to bless and to serve, serving and blessing. Hey, you're a royal priesthood. So often when we're trying to figure out what are our spiritual gifts, what are our callings, what are our anointings, what's my ministry, what task am I to do on the earth? I'll tell you what, number one, unequivocally for every follower of Jesus Christ who is a royal priest, and that's all of us, we're called to bless. How about you start right there, blessing other people. Seek to be a blessing to your brothers and your sisters. By the way, that's another reason to show up on a Sunday or a Wednesday. Well, I'm just not around people enough to bless them. Show up. (laughs) Be here. And as you're walking in the door, think to yourself, how can I bless somebody today? It might be a comment about how cool that black vest is. (laughs) Bring it on. It could be just 
Hey, I was thinking about you. Hey, can I pray for you this week? Seek to bless one other person when you walk through the door. Be a blessing. Do we even think this way, that blessing people in the name of the Lord is essential to our calling to follow Jesus? The Aaronite blessing, giving to the, given to the priest to bless the people. Well, royal priesthood, that's our job. Luke chapter 6, verse 27, Jesus says, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Hey, we're in a season where practicing that is not going to be difficult. Because someone is going to hate you. And someone is going to mistreat you. And someone is going to disagree with your take on the coronavirus and masks and vaccines and all the rest. It's one of the most divided times in the world I've ever seen. People divided on opinion. That is just opinion, by the way. And so if someone's divided against you and opposed to you and angry with you, what do you do? Bless them. Followers of Jesus, you bless them. 1 Corinthians 4.12 says when we are reviled, we bless. <laughs> that is just so not human. When we're reviled, we bless, Paul says. When we're persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. That's taking the high road. Peter said in 1 Peter 3, verse 8, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. I'll tell you what, there are a few things more humbling than blessing someone who's cursing you. That is a humbling experience. That will keep you humble. You know, humility doesn't necessarily mean something we like, but it's good for us. He says, not returning evil for evil, 1 Peter 3, 9, or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Hey, we have a blessing out in front of us. We are about to step into the most blessed position of all eternity in serving the Lord in the coming kingdom. Our blessing is before us. Our inheritance is assured. So bless. Because you know you are being Richly blessed. Now, back to this blessing number six. It is one of the oldest poems in the Hebrew scriptures. I'd never thought of it this way, but my friends, it is just that. It is poetic. Even in English, as you read through it, you can tell there's, there's a rhyme, there's a meter to it that seems, it sounds poetic, but in Hebrew, all the more. Verses 24, 25, and 26 are a deeply meaningful three-line poem, which means, which tells us that in giving this blessing, God thought it through. It is absolutely intentional in the way it's written, in the way it's spoken. The first line of the poem, which is verse 24, in Hebrew is three words, 12 syllables. The second line in Hebrew is five words, 14 syllables. The third line is seven words, 16 syllables. And if you read through also the number of Hebrew consonants, which is how the Hebrew language is written, in consonants, it builds steadily in the first line from 15, then to 20, then to 25. So it gets bigger as it goes. It is designed, this, this blessing, this poem is designed to crescendo, literally beginning with blessing and ending with shalom, peace. The name of the Lord is repeated three times in this blessing to emphasize what he says at the very end in verse 27, they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel and I will bless them and the I is emphatic. I will do this. And aside from the name of Yahweh those three times, if you took the name out, you would be left with exactly 12 words in all. No doubt, indicating the 12 tribes of Israel as the recipients of the blessing, at least originally. It's a beautiful poem. In fact, it's also clause and effect. And clause and effect, that is the first clause of each line, summons the Lord to draw near to his people while the second clause gives the effect of him drawing near. What do you mean? Listen to it this way. At first he is beckoned to bless and because of that, the people are kept. 
He is requested to make his face shine, verse 25. The result is his gracious favor. He's petitioned to lift up his countenance, and what does that bring? Peace. Cause and effect, clause by clause in this poem. By the way, one other thing to note in this, that though the sons of Israel is plural in verse 23, all six yous in the poem, the Lord bless you and keep you, all six of them are singular, which is wonderful because that means every Jewish man and woman and child would have heard this poem spoken directly to them. It's like when we sing a worship song and we sing glory to his name, power to his name, and then we shift and start saying glory to your name, power to your name. Does it make a difference? Suddenly you're singing to him, not just about him. And here in this blessing, the Lord through the Aaronite priesthood is speaking to you, not just to you. It's not just a congregational blessing. It is an individual blessing to every single person who hears this. But wait, is this blessing only for Israel? Speak to Aaron and to his sons. Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel, which sounds pretty clear who this blessing was to be spoken to. Maybe you've heard it read in a church as kind of a benediction. Maybe you've heard it sung. As I mentioned, I, we used to sing it at my college. It was a favorite old hymn. And all the different parts singing I remember being in the, in the massive auditorium. It was Abilene Christian University. By the way, ACU just beat the University of Texas. Just saying. But, but we would go into the massive um, auditorium there and just the singing, it was stunning. It was really overwhelming. It was all a cappella. And we would sing, the Lord bless you and keep you. And the bass part would rumble and the trebles. And by the end of it, you're just, everybody's getting chills. It was amazing. Uh, like I said, I'm not sure if we were more into the sound than the words. But I heard it over and over. I, I always had assumed as a college student, as a young man, well, yeah, that's a blessing of God for me, <laughs> personally. Speak to the sons of Israel. Bless them. Oh, okay. Well, I guess they deserve, they can have the blessing. No, Listen. There are those who say, hey, it's been commandeered by Christianity. It's a Jewish blessing. It is a Jewish blessing, absolutely, unquestionably. But John chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold, that is of the fold of Israel. I must bring them also. They will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, all are one in Christ Jesus. Paul says in Romans eleven seventeen, if some of the branches, speaking of Israel, were broken off, and you being a wild olive, and I know some of y'all were wild olives, if you were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you're arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. The root is Christ. And at the root of all blessing is Jesus, who blesses both Jew and Gentile alike. So yes, the blessing was originally to and for Israel. But once you are grafted in, do you understand that when you're grafted in, you become a partaker with Israel of the promises and the blessings. We now get to share in that. Nowhere do I feel that more than when we are in Israel. It's the one place I've gone in all my life in the world where I've stepped off a plane and felt like I was home. You share this amazing blessing. Now, not all the Israelis would agree or think that you deserve to have the blessing. It's theirs. They'll understand but we share in this with them. One last poetic note. The threefold use of God's name of Yahweh is, as we've talked about before, revelatory. Because it suggests Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all of whom, by the way, are called the Lord in the Bible. You know, throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, Lord, in those little small caps, Lord is Yahweh. You should always note that as you're reading through it is the name of the Lord. It's not just sir. 
It's Yahweh throughout. And then we get to the New Testament, Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus, Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus is Lord. I thought Yahweh was Lord. Exactly. And 2 Corinthians 3, 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So the Spirit is the Lord. Well, I thought Yahweh was the Lord, or at least Jesus was the Lord. I didn't know the Holy Spirit was the Lord. Yes, he is. The Trinity, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three, blessing in this poem, in that order, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, by the way. So follow that as we move through this powerful little poem. And we'll see these three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are the blessing for the unsettled life in the wilderness. The Lord bless you and keep you. First clause, first stanza, first verse. The Lord bless you and keep you. Bless is the verb form of barak in Hebrew, yiberak. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, Moses expounds on this idea of blessing. If you'd wonder, what, what exactly does that mean, the Lord bless you? Well, listen to this. Deuteronomy chapter 28. You can turn there. It's just the next book over if you'd like to. End of Deuteronomy. In fact, I'm going to give you a second to do that. Deuteronomy 28. I've yet to ever hear of anybody in a church assembly spraining their fingers, so you'll be okay. <laughs> oh, oh. Deuteronomy 28, verse 2. Moses is speaking at Mount Gerizim in the land. Actually, he's not in the land, but he's telling them these blessings to speak. They would speak these in the land, but he's giving them the blessings to speak. Verse 2, all these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Blessed you shall be in the city, and blessed you shall be in the country. Blessed shall the offspring of your body, and the produce of your ground, and the offspring of your beasts, and the increase of your herd, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord shall cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you, and they will come out against you one way, and they will flee before you seven ways, which, in other words, that's a complete overtaking, a complete fleeing. The Lord will command the blessing upon you in your barns and in all that you put your hand to, and he will bless you in the land which the Lord your God gives you. The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself, as he swore to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways." So all the peoples of the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they will be afraid of you and the Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the offspring of your body, in the offspring of your beast, in the offspring of your ground, in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. Oh, the Lord will open for you his good storehouse, the heavens, to give rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hand and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. The Lord will make you the head and not the tail. You will not only be above, and you will not be under, you, you will only be above, and you will not be underneath if you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I charge you today to observe carefully and do not turn aside from any of the words which I command you today to the right or to the left to go after other gods to serve them. Blessing upon blessing upon blessing. The Lord bless you. Yahweh bless you. Father bless you. And Talmud says, why do we ask God first to bless us? Then to keep us. It's because if God gives us material blessing, we need to be kept from the evil results such prosperity may bring. Such a Jewish perspective. The Lord bless you and keep you because once he gives you blessings, you need someone to keep you from your own greed and messing up and sinning because of all the blessings he's given you. <laughs> I don't think so. Sorry to disagree with Talmud on this one. I don't think that's it at all. 
The Lord bless you and keep you. He is not keeping us from the evil result of his blessing. No, the blessing is the keeping. The Lord bless you and keep you. We are most blessed when we are kept by the Lord. I think it's the first and greatest blessing of God that he keeps you, that he keeps me. The word to keep, yismer, in the Hebrew is to watch over, to guard us. He's got his eyes on us. And he keeps us. I, I love that. It reminds me, I, I was reading this and thinking way back when I was a kid. There was a time I got really sick. I don't even know what the illness was, but it was bad. And I was in bed, and, and my parents had erected this tent in my room. It was blankets kind of hanging around my bed so that a humidifier could be within that and give me the, the full strength of the, of the humidifier. And there was medicine in the humidifier. And my father had to come in two, three times during the night and give me this nasty yellow medicine. I'll never, it was the nastiest stuff I've ever had in my life. And he had to administer this to wake me up and give it to me. And, you know, and then I'd go back to sleep. I remember this so vividly. Because I remember my dad giving me the medicine and then I remember trying to sleep and rolling over and looking and through the shadow of the tent, I could see my dad sitting there all night long. Father watched over me. I never felt safer. The Lord has kept you. He keeps you. He watches over you. He is aware of you. Oh, but I'm so unsettled out here in the wilderness with all that's going wrong and all the difficulties of my life. The Lord is watching over you. He's not unaware of what's happening with you. We just sang in a song, and I'm going to have to ask Josiah to change the word. Just change the word. I know it's written differently, but we got to change the word. I reject the notion that God looked away from Jesus on the cross. I do not believe that's biblical. The Lord does not look away. And he does not look away from you. The Lord bless you and keep you. It's what he does. It's where the blessing truly is. And by the way, that, that word to keep also means to preserve. It has eternal implications. That is, he keeps us saved and secure. There's a psalm of ascent that is written based off of this, it's Psalm 121. Turn in your Bibles over there, about the middle of your Bibles, Psalm 121. And the basis of this very clearly is the Aaronite blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you. Psalm 121, verse one, which reads, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains from where shall my help come. I heard that the first time in the sound of music when the, what do they call her, the mother, grandmother, whatever she is, the, the mother, head nun, mother superior, thank you. She said, she said, I'm not a Catholic, I mean, it's kind of obvious. She said to Maria, she quoted this verse, I will lift up my, my, my eyes to the mountains from whence cometh my help. And you get this sense of, I'm gonna look to the mountains and those glorious Grand mountains will bring help to me. And that is not what the psalmist is saying. Not at all. This is a question that comes from despair. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. It's the picture here is not hoping that help is going to come from the mountains, but that the mountains represent danger. That the mountains are looming. There are enemies hiding in those rocky crags, in those shadows, as we move in dread through the dark canyons and the imposing peaks lean out over us. I look up at the mountains and I say, out of despair, where will my help come from? And the cry of the unsettled life immediately is followed by the answer, my help comes from the Lord, who made the heaven and the earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you, same word as the blessing. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. He's right there looking in from the tent all night long, keeping watch over his sons and daughters in their disease and in their struggle and in their fear in the dark. The Lord is your, verse five, 
keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul, your mind. He'll even keep your thinking straight. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. And you might want to circle the word guard in verse 8 because it's actually keep. Keeps, keeps, keeper, keep, and keep. Throughout this psalm, it's used five times. Five times as a blessing of the keeping of the Lord. And again, it is the same word all five times as in the Aaronite blessing. See, here's the problem with being settled. When I'm settled in this world and all is right with the world around me, I start to think I can keep myself. Just fine, thank you very much, I got it. We even say, I got this, I got, I'm good. I don't need your help, I don't need your prayer. That's one of the worst things a Christian can ever say. I don't need your prayer, I'm okay. What is wrong with you? The unsettled sojourner knows my help comes from the Lord who keeps me. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. What does that mean? Makes his face shine. It's not like my forehead beaming into the camera at home. Oh, trust me, I know. <laughs> to make his face shine is Ya'er Vapanav. Ya'er Vapanav, which literally translated to light up his face. The Lord make his face light up. What do we mean when we say her face was lit up? Hey, it's a euphemism for smile. A euphemism for smile. It's like when I first see my grandkids on a Sunday morning. Because they're all, you know, they come running in, or I, I saw them for the first time this morning. I walked in and they both saw me. And I'm just telling you, there's something that happens when two little ones go, Granddad! And you're a hero just for being bigger than they are. And there's no way to hear that and respond, Yeah, what? What do you want? Granddad, yeah? It makes me light up. Three different psalms echo this idea of the Lord's shining face, his face lit up. Psalm 31, 16, make your face shine upon your servant. Save me in your loving kindness. Psalm 80, verse 3, 7, and 19 says, O God, restore us, cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. Smile our way, Lord. Look upon us, with your glorious smile. Or Psalm 67. Turn over to Psalm 67 in your Bibles. Where again, the psalm is written off of the blessing. The blessing was embedded in Israel. Felt and known and experienced and heard every day in Israel. No wonder as David wrote the psalms. As the psalms of ascent were written. That they responded to the blessing that they had heard over and over that it so impacted their lives. And Psalm 67 verse one says, God be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy for you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its produce. Our God, our God blesses us. God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear him. I love that. It's a beautiful psalm. And note that it is a Gentile psalm sung from a Jewish perspective. This is a psalm saying bless all the earth. Not just bless Israel. Bless all the nations. Let all the nations bless him. Let all the nations respond to him to the ends of the earth that all may fear him. That day's coming, my friends. It's called the kingdom age and it is fast upon us. But you know what's interesting about this little psalm is the first verse says, God be gracious to us and bless us as though speaking, you're speaking to him. God, be gracious to us, bless us. And then it says, and cause his face to shine upon us. 
okay, I'm talking to God. And then I say, and cause his face to shine on us. What, what's he saying? Father, bless us and cause his face, the face of Jesus, to shine upon us. You see, his is the face that brought grace to the world. And in this second clause, the second verse of the poem, of the blessing, the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you, speaks of the Son, the face of Jesus, who Paul said, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. How? In the face of Christ. Make his face shine upon you. That's just so, so cool. Think about that. Anyone could look on the face of Jesus and see God and live to tell the tale. For the first time, when Jesus looked up out of the manger at Mary, Joseph and Mary were able to look at the face of God, as it were, in infancy and not die. Jesus, the 12-year-old in the temple, all the teachers sitting around amazed by his understanding and his questions could look at the face of God as a preteen and not die. Jesus moving through the Galilee, healing and teaching and interacting with people and having these side conversations, these little one-on-ones, and nobody died by looking at the face of grace that had come into the world, and yet his was the very face of God. John 14, 8, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long? And you've not yet come to know me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. Now, this part of the blessing implies Jesus with his face lit up, Jesus smiling. But did Jesus ever smile biblically? Nah, nope. Sinners, commoners, and children were drawn to him because he was such a grumpy drag. Did Jesus ever smile? There are full conversations online about this one question. Did Jesus smile? Think about Jesus and the children. Mark chapter 10, verse 16, he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. Because an old sourpuss is really inviting to small children. Again, with my grandkids. Granddad! Yeah, what do you want? Ah! I mean, what would they do? (laughs) They were drawn to him. They wanted to be with him. Obviously, there was warmth and compassion, and he made his face to shine on those little ones. What about that time? The 70 disciples came back. Jesus had sent them out for this amazing ministry, and they had a remarkable time. They came back, and they're just talking up a storm. Oh, Lord, this was the best. And we're told in Luke 10, 21, at that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. I can't even say rejoiced greatly without smiling. He rejoiced greatly. I love Mark's description of the rich young man who comes to Jesus. Remember this? And he says, what must I do to be saved? And there's so much in this brief interaction. But Mark says in Mark 10, 21, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. Jesus looked at him with love in his eyes. Try looking at someone with love and not smiling. Go ahead, give it a shot. Well, with the mask, it's a little more difficult. But try that. Go up to a loved one and say, I just want you to know I really love you. (laughs) You can't say it without smiling. Jesus looked at him with love. There had to be a gleam, a glow, a light on his face. John 15, 11, Jesus said, these things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you. Well, I don't want his joy. He never smiles. Come on! That my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. 
the overflowing joy of the Lord. And the Hebrew pastor said this about Jesus, Hebrews 12, 2, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And I ask you this morning, can you for a moment imagine the smiling face of Jesus? When at first we see him, what do you think it'll be like? When we're caught up to meet him in the clouds, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. What will the expression of Christ be in that moment? <laughs> you laugh because it's so ridiculous. Of course, you smile where there's joy. And no joy greater than the joy in the face of Jesus Christ. The Lord bless you and keep you. Father does. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. Remember the law was given by Moses. Grace and truth were realized in Jesus Christ. So the son brings this aspect of the blessing. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Shalom. It's everything in Hebrew thinking. So much farther beyond what we comprehend or understand. We say, peace, peace, peace out, dude. We don't get peace. We don't understand the complexity of peace. In the Hebrew mindset, it is the sum of all blessing. No wonder it begins the Lord bless you and it ends with shalom because shalom is the sum total of blessing. It's, it's, all, it's the whole package. Shalom, it's wholeness of being, it's wholeness of health and prosperity and contentment and tranquility and completeness. It's the whole deal. Shalom and peace. Peace comes, my friends, in this life, here and now, by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Lord, the Spirit, bless you and give you peace. You will not find peace without the Spirit of God within you and alongside you and even upon you, the peace of his Spirit. It's the whole deal. But what's the difference, verse 25, between the Lord make his face shine on you and the Lord lift up his countenance on you? Isn't countenance face? It is, actually the same word. So you could say, the Lord make his countenance shine on you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you. Or make his face shine, lift up his face on you. It's, it's the same word, but it's the word that precedes it that makes the difference. Make his face shine is yair va panav. But lift up his countenance is yisa va panav. And I know that clears it all up for you beautifully. Lift up his, to lift up the countenance is to give one's full attention to. I'm in my office. There's a knock at my door. The door tenuously opens. It's Eva with a question for me. I'm so sorry to interrupt you, boss. I love that she calls me boss. It really empowers me. <laughs> She'll look in, and if, if, I, if I'm at my desk, and I'm at my computer, and I've got my books open, and I'm there studying like this, yeah, what do you want? What do you need? Well, I just want to ask you, okay, go ahead, go ahead, I'm listening. Tell me, what do you need? I mean, how, what, am I even slightly engaged in the conversation? Now, what would be the difference be if I closed my computer, set aside the book? I don't think I've ever done that, but <laughs> close down and, and turn to her and say, what can I do for you? Full attention. To lift up the countenance here is to give full attention or regard to someone with interest so in the first, he lights up when he sees you. He smiles upon you. In the second, he's keeping his eyes on you with complete interest. So that's the other thing about the Lord. Not only does he watch over you, not only does he smile when he sees you, but he is fully engaged in your life. He is interested in you. <laughs> it's wonderful because there are times in my life where ain't no one interested in me. I walk in the door, dad's home, silence. What? Someone sing a dance, sing a song or do a little dance or something. Dad's home, dad's home. Really glad to see dad, you know. I love Cheryl to come running in. Honey, oh, and fall at my feet and undo my shoes and take them off. <laughs> Slip my slippers on. Come, we have a place prepared for you. Your dinner is on the stove. <laughs> Naomi's there, you know, with the palm frond. 
What do I get? Hey, I'm home. Crickets. He, he's interested in you. He's aware of you. He is focused. He pays attention to your life. Listen, not from, just from above, but right there by the constancy of his Holy Spirit. You realize the value of the presence of the Spirit of God in your life is that he's engaged in every single activity, everything that's going on, every concern, every fear, every problem, every struggle, every joy, every blessing, everything that's happening in your life, he's right there. He's in it with you. I, I joke about my family, but I marvel at times that Cheryl's stayed with me for 35 years. Like, how'd she do that? I wouldn't have stayed. Other times I've left myself. You know, gone to the Bahamas for a few minutes, and then I come back. No, he, he's with you, and he's engaged with you, and he's focused on you. And Jesus himself said, John 14, 16, I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, another comforter, the parakletos, that he may be with you, how long, Jesus? Forever, always. That once the Spirit comes, guess what? He never leaves. He never leaves. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot see because it does not know him or see him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me. But you see me because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. He who keeps my commandments or has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will disclose myself to him. Do you think Jesus was frowning when he said that? Judas, not Iscariot. That's kind of a bummer. Having the name Judas the rest of your life, you're Judas, not Iscariot. I wonder if he could, you know, just go with Judas and I. He said, Lord, what has happened then that you are not that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world. How does that work? Jesus said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. The Holy Spirit. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I've spoken to you while abiding with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. He will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And that's so good to know when we are the midbar, when we're in the wilderness. The Father who watches over us, the Father who smiles upon us, the Father who is engaged and paying attention to you. And Jesus said, peace, I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Gordon Wenham says in Jesus, the full meaning of peace is revealed. He gave peace. He made peace. And he is our shalom. That full sense of blessing that brings peace. By his spirit indwelling each and every sojourner. So the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 26.3, the steadfast of mind you will keep in shalom, shalom. Doubled up, perfect, complete, absolute peace. Why? Because he trusts in you. So that's what happens in the unsettled life. I get unsettled, I start to trust better. Which makes me think, I want to be unsettled. Oh Lord, don't let me settle for this life. May I be unsettled and therefore trust in you. Jesus said in John 16, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have turmoil, distress, and a real bummer of a life. Because right, he doesn't smile, right? So these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have shalom. In the world you have tribulation. It's unsettling. But take courage. I have overcome the world. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. 
So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and I will bless them. And again, the I is emphatic. God means to do this, but the word invoke sounds so ritualistic. So they shall invoke my name. <laughs> I mean, it's got a real religious ring to it. So if you want to be religious, use the word invoke. I invoke thee. We have invoked thine presence upon our heads. Invoke is not the word. The word in the Hebrew is very simply put. King James got it right. So did the English Standard Version. They, they read that way, and they shall put my name on the sons of Israel, and I will bless them. That's how you get the blessing for the unsettled life. When the name of Christ is put on you, when you begin to simply wear his name, simply, personally, the name of the Lord, there is salvation in no one else, Peter and John said, Acts 4.12 there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Paul says, Romans 10, 12, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. You know what happens? You call on the name of the Lord and he puts his name on you, tags you with his own name. Have you called on Jesus' name? Have you responded to him? Man, don't put Jesus off. Put him on. Paul says we put on Christ. You receive his name as your Lord, and this blessing, this very blessing, falls on you. It will be yours forever. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace and Christians, do you wear his name? See, if you're a follower of Jesus, his name has been put on you. Are, are you wearing that? Are you aware of that? Are you declaring that in life, day to day, that I bear the name of Christ? Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1.11, to this end also we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power, so that, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not settlers. We are sojourners, itinerant, unsettled aliens with a promise. Revelation 3.12, he who overcomes I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he will not go out from it anymore and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. And then and only then will everything be settled. Amen? Let's stand together. You know, when it comes down to it, the Aaronic priesthood or the Aaronite priesthood were simply messenger boys. They were just vessels through whom God would speak to his people, through whom God would get across his love and his blessing for his people. So when, when Aaron stood with his out, hands outstretched to the, peop, to the people, I, I'm going to do that this morning, not because I have anything special, but indulge me in this just for a moment. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord Make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Father, we receive your blessing this morning as from you, by your spirit, from the Lord Jesus, spoken of the heart of the Father. We are so thankful, Lord, that you have Breathe life into us. We're so thankful, Lord, you have breathed new life into us. We're so thankful, Lord, that you desire to bless us. Father, truly, while we can understand the breakdown and the, the, the metrics of the poem, Lord, we don't understand why you want to bless us other than it's who you are. And we are so thankful for your many blessings. 
In Jesus' name, amen.